Open your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 1 again. John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time. We ask that you would take your word, inspired by you, written by men, and that you would use it to our everlasting benefit to conform us to the image of Christ by knowing more of Christ. And that ultimately, at the end of all things, Father, because we've been here, because we've heard this word, because we've meditated upon it yet again in these familiar passages, that you would be glorified. That's all we ask, and that's all we seek. And if we seek something more, Father, we pray that you would strip it from us this morning for being the idol that it would be. Because our heart and our obligation is to praise you and to praise you alone forever. Make that our heart. Increase our love for you, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1 and read through verse 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, meaning this Word, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And life, that life, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If we were somehow this morning to all be able to board a plane and to move this worship service to the city of Geneva, Switzerland, And to begin to tour that city and to find ourselves ultimately on the campus of the University of Geneva on this fine Reformation Sunday, we would find there what is known and what has existed for some time as the Reformation Wall, commemorating the work and the influence of the Reformation throughout Europe. And into that stone wall built atop the ancient walls of the ancient city of Geneva that at one time served as its fortification, as a fortress city, are carved the likeness of 15, or I'm sorry, 15 foot tall statues, the likeness of four men. William Farrell, Theodore Beza, John Calvin, and the Englishman, the Scotsman, John Knox. As moving as the memories and the biographies of these men are in our day and in our age, these four heroes of the faith who gave their lives to study the Word of God and to preach the Word of God, even more moving is the inscription below them. Written in Latin at the bottom of that monument to this very day are these words. post Tenebras Lux. It was the motto of the Reformation, which simply means this, after the darkness, light. After the darkness comes the light. It was true in Genesis chapter 1, 
when God said in the midst of all of the darkness, let there be light, and light was. It was true at the time of the Reformation, but nowhere is it more true than in our text this morning. In John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, light comes through the revelation of the Son of God, the Word incarnate. And so as we sit here this morning with the Word of God upon our laps, we know that the greatest light throughout the history of the world, the greatest light in all of eternity, the, the greatest light that is the focal point of Scripture is, as we talked about in the first hour, the central person of the Reformation, the manifestation of God to us, none other than Jesus the Christ, the Word, the Son of God made flesh. The greater light of the sun may rule our physical earthly days, but the greatest light of the Word made flesh will rule all of our days. In John's Gospel this morning, in these two brief verses, we see, and I want you to join me in seeing the power of the Word. The power of the Word as He is revealed here in these verses. Number one, this morning, there is the power to produce. The power to produce. We talked about verse 3 and we looked at that last week. All things. And by saying all things, we, we mean literally everything of every kind has come into being through him. And apart from him, nothing that exists came into being. He is quite simply the only and the greatest source of creation. And that theme and that train of thought continues this morning as John goes further into verse 4. In him was life. Not only did life come from him, but in him is life. And that life that is in the word, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the light. Definitively so. Exclusively so of men. And because he is the life, and because he is the light, he has the power to produce. At some point in our life, we all have to deal with the realities that all of this life is from God because He is life. I was listening to a news show this week. They were debating certain realities of the world that started out political and then it moved to more philosophical discussion as the panel was discussing. And one of the participants in that panel came to the conclusion he said so i guess at some point we have to conclude that before any of this was here there was some life form and without knowing it he is essentially saying to us that john 1 3 4 and 5 are absolutely true that prior to any of this coming into existence There had to be one who not only created life, but he created life because he is life. Life does not merely come from him because he commands it. It comes from him because he is life. We are who we are. We are created as we are because he is life. We are not our own. We are not self-made people. Life is not a random commodity. It is a precious gift that comes from divine origin. Wherever God is, there's going to be life. It's simply a, 
a matter of being. And as we consider the existence of the word throughout the gospel of John, what do we find everywhere the word goes? We find life. It's been here physically. Now, as Jesus walked the earth, it's been here physically for millennia by this point. But everywhere Jesus goes, the principle remains the same, that life follows in His footsteps. The dead are raised to life, that the blind are made to see. The opposite is true, isn't it? That the great enemy of God, the great enemy of the Word, Satan himself, in his anti-God crusade, is here to do one thing, to eliminate life. He is here to eliminate physical life. He is here to eliminate spiritual life. And I don't think we realize just how true that is. We live in a culture of death, brothers and sisters. We can point to things like abortion as an obvious example. That our world so treasures the ability to murder the unborn... That we will raise all kinds of chaos when people try to prevent it. To the point you have this week. Certain organizations demanding that professional athletes no longer play for teams headquartered in the state of Texas. Because the state of Texas has tried to defend life. We want the right to kill. That comes from Satan. Where he doesn't kill physically, he maims, he destroys life as it is designed by God to be lived, abundant, joyful, full, free because of sin. He invades and he destroys people's lives. He hates life. And there's a great contrast that Jesus is already being set up against and as part of here in these verses. He'll go on to say in John chapter 10, verse 10, a verse you all know, the thief comes only to what? Steal and to kill and to destroy. That's the reality of the world around us. And yet the word Jesus himself says, I have come that they might have what? Life. And life more abundantly. The word is on a victorious campaign to perpetuate life. Because he is life. And he wants all of creation to be a testament and a reflection of that life. That's what creation is designed to do. Creation is here to testify to the life that is in God. The life that is in the Word, so that wherever He speaks, things come alive. That's why we have creation. That's why God made creation. That's why God created us, not only physically, but spiritually, that we might send out the praises and the truth of Him who is life. Yet in the face of opposition, we must clearly and boldly assert, in the face of Satan's anti-life life campaign as John does that life is in the word and life comes from the word even to those who don't want to hear it I want you to notice Acts chapter 17 this morning for just a moment 
Some people have argued that in reaching a lost world, we can't be too biblical, we can't be too scriptural, we can't put too much emphasis and weight on Christ. We need to kind of go through the back door and win them in other ways because the truth of who God is and what God is is just too offensive and the world can't handle it. And yet I want you to observe the Apostle Paul's example of evangelism and the example of how Paul deals with the world in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. He comes into Athens. He's on Mars Hill. He is contending with the greatest philosophers of the day, which the Greeks were known for. And he says to them, after looking at their list of gods, and at the end they have their little statue to the unknown God. Just in case we missed one, we'll put a catch-all here. To the unknown God. And Paul says... It is this God of whom I speak. And in Him we live and move and exist. Only in Him. In other words, you see all these other gods on your list of God row? They don't exist. There is no life in them. They have produced nothing. But it is in this God whom you say you do not know that we live and move and have our very being. Why? Because that is the power of the word. In him is life. In him and in him alone and out of him will come life. Verse 3 speaks again of specific created acts. But the most fundamental building block we need to be aware of is that he creates because of what he is. Life lies in the word. And John will never, no matter how much you read John, you'll never find him straying from this idea. In fact, when he gets to his letters, toward the end of the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he writes this. See if this sounds familiar. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is where? In His Son. It's not something the Son gives that He, you know, goes and gets off the shelf and then hands out. He gives it out of who He is. In Him is life. He who has the Son, John goes on to say, He who has the Son has the life. Why? Because the Son is the life, and apart from the Son, there is no life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the Son of life. I don't care how much faith they have, how much religion they have. They don't have life if they don't have the Son. The idea of life, particularly eternal life, is John's heart. It's his focus. It's what he is transfixed upon. In fact, so much so that if you were to do a a word study in the New Testament, 25% of all the New Testament references to life occur right here in John's Gospel. So in other words, you have to take the other other 26 books of the New Testament to make up the other 75%, because 25% is contained in John's thinking about Jesus. 
John speaks of life more than 40 times in this gospel. The second closest book to speak of the idea of life and its roots and where it comes from and life eternal. The second closest is 17 times. 17, more than double the average and more than double second place. John speaks of life. John is known as the evangelist. What do evangelists do? They are ones who spread, particularly from the Greek word euangelion, the good news. What is the good news? That there is life. Where is the life? In the word. In Christ. No wonder John is called the evangelist. He is fixated on life in Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Did you hear that? The Father raises the dead and the Son gives life. That's why, as we talked about in the first hour, the doctrine of Christ alone is so pivotal, so imperative. Because there is no life apart from the life that Jesus gives. Our faith, our profession doesn't create life. Jesus creates life. Jesus gives life. I want to be in the one, as close to the one as I can, who is giving out life, don't you? I don't want to be wandering around doing my own thing. I don't want to be just another religious person. I want to be in the one in whom life resides. And that's why that little word in, that little preposition matters so greatly when you read your Bibles. To be found in Him, Paul says in Philippians 3. Not having a righteousness that is my own, derived from the law, but a righteousness that is by faith in Christ because I've been put in to the very source of life itself. I've been grafted into the living tree. John gives us such a glorious picture. But Jesus could not give what he did not already possess. The observers this week on TV were absolutely right. There could, God could not give out. He could not breathe out that which he did not already possess in himself because there was nothing else besides God. John 5.26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. It oozes out and it is an absolutely necessary thing. But I want you to notice verse 4. Also marking verse 4 as distinct in the source of life from verse 3 in the actual created act of God. Is the fact that the previous verse 3 speaks of the power of the word in creating. But verse 4 speaks of the power of the word simply by being. We see the power of the word. To create in verse 3. And John, it's almost as if John says, but let's back up a step. You know, we, we, we've, we've given you the final end of this. But let me back up a little bit. And let's just think about this together. Not only does the word have the power to create. The word has power because of what the word is. He is life. And he is light. 
Life cannot be created in an original sense. It must already be present in order to be perpetuated. So it is that John backs us up in verse 4 to say, and the reason verse 3 happened is because verse 4 is true. In him is life. Cleon Rogers says in his Greek lexicon that the word here means the right and the power to bestow activity, to make something alive. How true that is. Read Romans 5 verses 10 17 and 21, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by whose life? His life. Did you hear that? We are saved because Christ is life. Because in Christ is the life. We are reconciled to God by his life. By who he is, brothers and sisters. You see, verse 4 ultimately matters when you get to the gospel because if Jesus is not life, you don't have life. You can pray all the prayers you want. You can be as religious as you want to be. You can have as much faith as you can muster. But unless Jesus himself is life, nothing else matters. But because he is life, we have life. When we are placed in him, we share in his life. Romans 5, 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We're not given life dispensed separately to us. Okay, You know, here's your life, go live it. Here's a little bit of life for you. Here's a little bit of life for you. No, we live through Him. In Him. That's what Paul is saying in Acts 74. In Him we live and move and have our very existence. Romans 5.21, so that His sin reigned in death. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Again, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is very careful in his wording. Notice that he says life, eternal life in particular, does not come as a separate benefit. It comes in conjunction and in intimate union with Christ who himself is life. Notice Paul's word in Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. Speaking of our glorious hope when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, our hope is in Christ who is life. Paul is very explicit about that. It is our life. Christ is life and we rejoice that we are put into him. Therefore, now we have life, not life apart from him. And I think that figures in to perhaps our trepidation about death, even as Christians. That's why Paul can speak so boldly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there's no fear of death for the Christians, but I'm afraid to die. And I think we have a false dichotomy that's been created through wrong thinking, that we kind of have this life now, and we've been given a little bit of hope of eternal life, but at some point all of this stops. Right? 
the last beat of your heart, this all stops. And then you start this new thing called eternal life. And that's kind of a scary thing to think about your life stopping and then having to restart. What if it doesn't restart? But when we understand the theology of Paul and of John and of God himself, what we understand this is the life we have now is the life we're going to continue to have. There is no cessation of life. It doesn't stop and restart. We continue to live eternally in the one who lives eternally. And we have nothing to fear. We simply have a change of address and location. But our life is not at all interrupted. Why? Because the life we have is his life. We are living in and through him. And so it is continual without interruption forever. Brothers and sisters, that ought to give us great comfort. Great comfort. That our hope and life and death, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, is in Christ. Not something Christ gave. Something Christ is. And will never cease to be. That's where we live. And therefore our worship does not flow from reflections about impersonal reality. About a life that doesn't end in some mystic sort of way. But it does flow when we connect ourselves to a personal God who is life. In a personal relationship to the one who himself is eternal life. We live through this life. Through this word. And therefore we have light. In the words of Psalm 36 verse 9. Which by the way. Would later become the motto of Columbia University. Go on the university campus of Columbia today. And ask if anybody knows this. Psalm 36 verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light. We see light. In your light, in your life, we see light. What is this light? Edwin Hoskins comments this way. He says, this light is that which enables men to recognize the operation of God in the world. Isn't it true? That when we become believers, when we are rooted and anchored in Christ, the scales are lifted off of our eyes and we begin to see God operating everywhere. At least that's how it should be for a Christian. If you can't find God behind everything and behind every bush, then you're not thinking right as a Christian. In his light, in his life, we see light. We see him everywhere. We see the handiwork of God. We see the providence of God. When we have been given that life and that light, we can begin to connect the dots. Rogers again says it's light for men to see how they are and how God is. We begin to see, in other words, accurately, clearly, truly. When the word who is life and who is light bestows it upon us, brings us into that life with him, that light with him. The practicality of this verse is not telling men how to, but in showing them who is. Let me say that again. Because too much of our gospel thinking and our gospel presentation in evangelicalism today is is just to give how-tos. 
do this, do this, do this, do this, and you're a Christian. And once you're a Christian, do this, do this, do this, do this, and God will be happy with you. That's the Christian life in a nutshell in modern evangelicalism. But you know, that's foreign to the New Testament writers. They're not concerned to show you how to. They're concerned to show you who is. And John is going to spend his entire gospel showing us who is. The one who is life and the one who is light. Look at him. Live in him. Find your being in him. And when you do, everything in the world will begin to say, that is God. Look at God at work here. Look at what God is doing there. It is the who is that produces, as the hymn writer said, faith in him who died to save. Listen to these words from Johann Schwedler, who wrote the hymn, Ask You What Great Things I Know. This, he says, is that great thing I know. This delights and stirs me so. Faith in him who died to save, him who triumphed or the grave. Jesus Christ, the crucified. It is Christ whose life saves. And that is the only subject and the only object of our hope and our faith. We are only to look there. And that's what John wants you to see. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says as much by saying this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus connects him. Jesus shows the relation between the two and the point at which they cross is himself. That light reveals, it illumines, it draws. And at times, yes, the light offends. Light is offensive. The light has not come in a vacuum, however. That light comes in a very precise context. And that context that light comes into is darkness. Notice verse 5. The light shines in the darkness the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, light is most noticeable when it pierces the darkness. Have you noticed that? Light is most noticeable when it pierces darkness. We could sit here all day and really none of us notice that there are multiple light bulbs in this room that are illuminated. But take one of those light bulbs into a desert miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away from the nearest light and turn it on. And within the radius of the ability of the human eye to see, every eye would be turned to that light. It would draw immediate attention. What is that light over there? When there is no other light, you notice the one light. And John says, this light shines in the darkness like a single bulb where there are no other bulbs to compete with it. It shines into that darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it.
We don't think about light on a bright summer day, but we do think about it in the dead of night in the winter. But wait until we are enveloped in complete darkness, John is saying, as we are in this world because of sin, because of the fall. Enveloped in darkness that is so intense you can cut it with a knife. And he says the smallest beam of light will capture our attention. And here we have the piercing light that comes from the very source of life itself shining into the darkness. None of us like our sleep being interrupted with lights coming on. Parents, we know this right. Especially with our kids as they get older. And they're teenagers and they love to sleep. And you walk in and you flip the light on. Oh, turn the light off! Why? It hurts. It's piercing. It's bright. And when the Word, who is the light, penetrates a dark, sinful world who hates Him, that is on its master, Satan's anti-life campaign... And anti-light campaign. When the, when the word and the light penetrates that world, it is doing so against rebellion of an entrenched enemy that would have that light extinguished as soon as possible. And this is where John says, here's the beauty of the light. You can't stop it. It is going to pierce even where it is not wanted. It will reveal sin. You can't stop that. It will, re- uh, it will reveal deception as the outcome of sin. That light is going to show you that God has been obscured. That the word has been obscured and eclipsed by its darkness. It's going to reveal all kinds of things that the world is not going to like, but the world can't stop it. This is the world, after all, created by that light. And he's coming to claim what's his. He's coming into the world that he has every right in the world to be there. Yes, the world is warped by darkness and into that darkness... More noticeably than ever, we see the word piercing it so that he can bring it back to the light of life in the Father through himself. The word coming is a declaration that God has declared an offensive war against Satan in the darkness. He pierces when Jesus came, when the word put on flesh, it was a shot across the bow to Satan that I am here to reclaim what is mine. You don't believe that Satan wasn't threatened by that? That Satan didn't understand what was happening in the advent of the word becoming flesh? You haven't read your Old Testament then. Because over and over again, what did Satan do? He tried to disrupt and destroy the line that the Messiah would come through to stop the light. He did it through the slaughter of male babies. He did it through corruption and sin that jeopardized the kingly line of David. God overcame all of them. 
But it was his will. It was what he wanted to do. And so when the light comes into the world and it shines in the darkness, that is a declaration of war. This is not simply a light on the horizon. This is the light of a battleship over the horizon headed full steam towards you to light you up. And it terrifies the world. But the word and the light is not intimidated by Satan just as light cannot be harnessed and stopped. In a physical context, so the word and the light cannot be stopped by Satan. He is not content with a two-world system. That is, what is, that is what is ultimately meant here. When God sent the light into the darkness, He is saying to Satan, You may not have my world. We're not going to a two-state solution here, Satan. We're not going to say, hey, you stay over there and you, you be happy and I'll stay over here and I'll be happy. No, I'm coming back for what's mine. And John's use of light is powerful here. It pierces and it will accomplish its purpose. I want you to notice, not so subtly, that Jesus continues the same throughout John's gospel. He uses repeatedly language of victory. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says this, I will draw. Not I might. Not I'm going to try. I will do it. I will draw all men to myself. I will accomplish this thing. In John 17, 4, Jesus praying to His heavenly Father, Before he's even gone to the cross. And he says this. I have accomplished the work. That's victory folks. He's saying it's already as good as done. I cannot and I will not fail. John chapter 19 and verse 30. John closes the earthly life of Jesus. With those familiar victorious words. That hearken all the way back to John chapter 1 verse 5. It is what finished i've won debt paid battle won why because the light pierced the darkness i want you to notice lastly this morning there's a power to prevail when the word who is life and who is light enters the world in that he created that he made he entered to impose his will <laughs> How different is that than American Jesus, huh? Would you please like me? Would you please follow me? Would you please be my disciple? That's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. The light comes to impose his will. And he does so righteously and he does so rightly because he created it all in the first place. And it is him that has been violated and offended, not we. And so when the light comes, John says this, the darkness did not comprehend it. At least that's how the New American Standard translates it. And I have to say it's a poor translation. If you're reading from an English Standard Version or an ESV this morning, you'll find a better translation in the final phrase of verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
That's the meaning of the word. We look at comprehensive, oh, these poor people, they didn't understand. That's not it at all. They understood and they were fighting back. But what is being communicated here in John's language is victorious language that the darkness did not overcome it. In other words, it could not resist it. And we know that's consistent with Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Speaking of the church. What is the church? It is the body of Christ endued with the life of Christ. And it is not hell that is attacking the church. It is the church that is attacking hell in Jesus' teaching. And he's saying the church, because it is endued with my life, cannot overcome. It can't endure. I win. The darkness cannot overcome it. In, the, in its original meaning, in John's use of the Greek language, the, the word means to seize or to overcome, not to comprehend mentally. Apprehend might be a better word. But in the original, it means that they could, the darkness could not seize or overcome the piercing, penetrating power of the light into this darkness. The irony here is thick. The power of the word coming from the life of the word created the very ones who would resist the word so that in the end they could not overcome the word. The word will overcome them. The darkness, John again uses a constant light versus darkness theme throughout his gospel will continue to illustrate that the darkness will always be provoked by the very presence of the light. It will be provoked by the very presence of the life, and yet they cannot silence or seize that light. We see it going on all around us, brothers and sisters. There is, we're not engaged in a political battle in this world. I hope you realize that by now. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. And there are attempts all around us to silence the light. To extinguish the light. To to put things of the, the life and the light out of mind, out of sight. So they don't have to be confronted by it and irritated by it and convicted by it. Church history has proven one thing. The more you try to extinguish the light, the brighter it's going to shine. So much to the point that we have points in history like we did in the Middle Ages where Christianity seemed to have been defeated. And it was such a minority. One or two here. One over there. A small group over there. And yet we find in that darkness, that light so illumined the darkness that the darkness would go to the infinite ends of the earth to silence one representative of the light. But all it did was make more light. They may shatter the glass housing in which that light was, but it would just spread like fire. The world cannot take any light. 
the darkness cannot tolerate it. And so even if it's a small light, they will come for it to try to silence it. And yet this is the reality. They did not overcome it. It must be remembered that they did not take Jesus' life. I love that. They did not take Jesus' life. Jesus laid it down. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Go ahead, darkness. Try to, try to extinguish the flame. Try to put it down. You know what? You're so impotent and powerless. You can't even take the light. He lays it down. But beware of this. The one who lays it down will also be the one who takes it up. That is an act of war. That is a defiance of evil. That is a defiance of Satan's anti-life and light campaign. I'm going to lay it down so that you can't even have the satisfaction of saying you killed it. And in that, you'll know this. I have the authority to take it up. You cannot stop me. Even what they perceive as victory has been stripped away from them. You want to talk about agitation. What you thought was a victory isn't even a victory. It's like the team that wins and they cheat and then they get the title stripped from them. What you thought you won, you didn't even win because you're a lie. But here we have truth and life and light and he wins. Every time. They didn't take his life. He laid it down. He took it up again. And it is now that life and that light in which we live and move and have our victorious existence. No fear of death. We sung it, didn't we? We sung it this morning when we sang in Christ alone. No fear of death. Because the life and the light has overcome it. It could not overcome him. So brothers and sisters. Rather than how to. Look at who is. How to is not going to encourage you very far. How to is going to stop when you hit the first road bump. That wasn't. Well they didn't tell me about this as a joke right for pastors. They didn't tell us about this in seminary. And unless you're connected to. The word of God, the one who wrote it, you'll just quit. You'll say, they don't have an answer for this. I give up. But when we are connected to and in the life and the light, and rather than just a few how-to steps that are insufficient for all of life's various scenarios, we know who is, we'll just keep plugging. We'll keep going. Because we know the one who is it is the overcoming light. Who is the overcoming light. And someday it will be obvious to all that he has prevailed. We win. 
Some people like to go to John's book of Revelation at the end and say, well, we know who wins in the end. I beg to differ. We know who won in the beginning, yes? We know who wins from the very start because John tells us. So while the Reformation motto from a human perspective may be true, after the darkness comes the light, the reality has always been and always will be that through the darkness, even in the darkness, is the light. And the darkness cannot overcome it. Father, thank you for your word. As we come now to your table to celebrate the sacrifice of your son who is life and who is light, who brought us into this kingdom by what we are about to observe. May we give unending praise and thanks to you. We love you because you loved us. We are alive to love you and to know you because you have made us alive through your Son who is life and who is light. Bless this time and cause it to be an act of worship, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.